This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, August 31st. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the League of Women Voters and Mississippi Conference of the NAACP jointly file suit against the Secretary of State to expand absentee voting for the November election. Then, 15 years after Katrina, we examine how life has changed for Mississippi Coast residents and how Hurricane Laura has them paying it forward. Plus, COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations are trending down in August, but health professionals say the threat of the pandemic is far from over. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The state of Mississippi and the Secretary of State's office are facing two lawsuits over expanding absentee voting due to the coronavirus pandemic. Attorneys with the Mississippi Center for Justice appeared in Hines County Chancery Court last week to ask for clarification on a stipulation to vote by absentee ballot. The legislature temporarily added that those quarantined by a doctor due to COVID-19 can vote absentee. Attorneys with the MCJ argue people with pre-existing conditions and concerns about contracting the virus should be eligible to vote absentee. Also last week, the Mississippi League of Women Voters filed a joint suit with the Mississippi Conference of the NAACP in federal court with a similar argument. But their case goes further by asking the court to waive requiring absentee applications and ballots to be notarized. Christy Wheeler with the League says the process is cumbersome. She tells our Desiree Fraser the suit is aimed at standardizing the expectations for absentee voting under the legislature's language and protecting those who fear going to the polls during the pandemic. In the expansion, they use the words um, quarantine, a physician imposed quarantine, which was confusing and vague to say the least. And we have now 82 counties whose circuit court clerks are trying to figure out exactly what that means and how to handle that. Have you been in talks with them? Have you done any kind of informal survey of how clerks are seeing this? Yes, I have. I I called several different clerks' offices early after the legislation was signed into law, and many of them had no idea what it was at all. More recently, I have talked to several of the, the court clerks down on the Gulf Coast They're all of the same mindset that if someone checks off that block that they are temporarily or permanently disabled due to physician-imposed quarantine, they're not going to question it. Those are the ones I've talked to. However, many people are going to read that and go, but I'm not under a physician-imposed quarantine. I'm staying home because I know it's dangerous. I don't want to go to the polls because I'm concerned about standing in lines and being confronted with lots of other people who may or may not be uh, appropriately socially distanced or wearing a mask. What is the answer to this? Well, the answer to this is since the legislature did not 
define these terms in an appropriate way that it could be executed. And since the Secretary of State has not defined these terms in a way that the law could be appropriately executed, we have chosen to file a lawsuit and ask the court to do exactly that. Mississippi has excuses that voters can use to vote, but there really isn't a category that specifically fits being fearful of COVID-19 and not going to vote, but being allowed to vote. Exactly. First of all, Mississippi's absentee voter law is very um, narrowly defined in its excuses. So um, a, a small percentage of people vote absentee because of, of those narrow definitions. Now, people 65 years of age and over, like myself, can easily vote uh, absentee. And I say easily, and I should take that word out, because it's not easy to vote absentee. If you vote in person absentee, you have to go to the clerk's office, you have to fill out an application, you have to complete your ballot, you have to put it in the envelope and seal it, and you have to get both the application and the ballot envelope certified by the clerk's office. Now, if you decide that you want to do it by mail, you have to ask for the application and the ballot. Most clerks are saying if you ask for a ballot to be mailed to you, they'll send you the application and the ballot together. Now, that sounds like it's pretty easy to do, but you have to complete the application and get it notarized unless you're in that temporary or permanently disabled category, in which case you can get it witnessed by someone 18 years of age or older. But if you get it notarized, you have to have both the application and the ballot envelope both notarized. And oh, by the way, they send you two different envelopes, one to send back the application and one to send back the um, ballot. If you try to put both of them in one envelope, your ballot will be rejected. These are just little details that make it very, very difficult for a person to vote absentee in Mississippi. Why do you think that is? I hesitate to say that it's voter suppression, but I feel in my heart that it is that, that we make it as difficult as possible for people to vote. Uh, And I hate to see that happening in this state, but I think it's a, a carryover from from days past where you didn't want everybody to vote. So what do you say to those who say, that's not a good enough reason, being fearful of COVID-19, that's not a good enough excuse? Well, I would say to them that they're not paying attention to the data, that they're not really um, concerned about other people, uh, that the data clearly indicates that the, the pandemic is reality, the, the contagion is reality, and the deaths are reality. And, and for people to say that, I would have to say that they're, they're simply not paying attention. Are you asking that this lawsuit um, be handled expeditiously since we're Ab- getting close to November? <laughs> we're like 67 days away from the election and we absolutely need this to be handled very, very expeditiously. I feel for the the election commissioners and the circuit clerks, the circuit clerks who have to get absentee ballots ready to mail out on the 21st or to have them ready for in-person voting. If we open this up, we could have a huge uh, amount of people 
requesting absentee ballots, and that's going to be a uh, a real problem for circuit clerks. So the sooner we can get this adjudicated, the better off it will be for everybody. Well, Christy Wheeler with the League of Women Voters, we really appreciate you uh, highlighting this issue for us and giving us some insight. Thank you. My pleasure. The Mississippi Secretary of State's office says it can't comment on pending litigation. Voting rights active, uh, advocates are asking judges to rule on the cases right now since the November 3rd election is about eight weeks from now. Coming up 15 years after Katrina, we examine how life has changed for Mississippi Coast residents and how Hurricane Laura has them paying it forward. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. As communities in Texas and Louisiana are cleaning up from Hurricane Laura, Mississippi Coast residents are marking the 15th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. MPB's Evelina Burnett reports they are reflecting on the many ways life has changed and paying it forward, the generosity they experienced. An 18-wheeler is sitting in a parking lot on busy Highway 49 in Gulfport. It's full of supplies donated for Hurricane Laura relief. We have lots of cases of water, uh, and we have lots of large industrial cans of things like pork and beans and corn and yams. That's David uh, Weldon, one of several Gulfport Rotary Club members volunteering to load up items dropped off by coast residents. On this 15th anniversary of what folks here still call the storm, residents are paying forward the help they received after Katrina. Weldon is himself a recent transplant to the coast. He was at the University of Mississippi 15 years ago and had friends who were affected by the storm, he says, but didn't really see the full impact firsthand. And so when I moved here to the coast about three, three and a half years, I've gotten to know so many people and I've heard these stories about how just days after this horrific event, people from all over the nation that they had no connection whatsoever to the people of the Gulf Coast showed up hammers and food and, and, and tools and cleanup equipment in hand, and, and those stories are inspiring to all of us. The food and cooking supplies in this truck will be used by volunteers with the Giving Back Foundation to make hot meals for relief workers and residents in areas affected by Hurricane Laura. A hot meal. It's something many coast residents remember cherishing after living without power, water, and other utilities for weeks after Katrina. Earl Etheridge is the Emergency Management Director for Coastal Jackson County. He says Katrina also changed the way utilities, cities, counties, and others prepare for and respond after storms. Utility companies have made some major changes to how they have their stuff run, uh, how they have their uh, utilities placed and the backup systems that they have for those cities, the counties, all now have in place agreement with response companies to come in to help support and get county activities and city activities back online after a storm. Etheridge says the county's three storm shelters, built since 2005, are also more hardened and self-contained, with the ability to sustain themselves for up to 72 hours. Mississippi Emergency Management Agency Director Greg Michelle says the state system is now, by design, state-managed, 
locally executed and federally supported. One of the things that everyone that was here during Katrina, I was not, but those that lived through it will tell you that, you know, they had to wait at long times for stuff to get there. And uh, I will tell you right now that the counties today are very well prepared to at least initially sustain themselves in nearly every aspect of emergency response. Michelle says in addition to an improved response after a storm, the local, state, and federal governments have put in place mitigation measures to try to prevent the worst before it happens. Those hardened storm shelters, for example. If the same storm were to hit Mississippi today that hit in 2005, the effects would be different. Uh, it would be less because of the mitigation that's been done. So Mississippi's come a long way. We may have to experience that again. I, I hope not. But if we do, I believe that we'll be in a much better position to respond should that happen. Hurricane Katrina caused $125 billion in property damage. Businesses along the Gulf Coast have put in place plans to help prevent the kind of losses they saw in Katrina and to help them recover afterwards, such as moving their data to off-site servers or cloud storage. Gulf Coast Business Council President Ashley Edwards says it's a process that has stood them well in the years since, which have seen a number of other natural and man-made disasters. Resiliency and mitigation has been a big part of the recovery from Hurricane Katrina ranging on through the the oil spill and uh, some of the issues associated with the flooding of the Mississippi River. And what I have found is that Gulf Coast businesses understand the need for contingency plans. They understand the need for resiliency preparation. Fifteen years after Hurricane Katrina, there are now many coastal residents who didn't experience the storm themselves, which worries some, like Jackson County Emergency Director Earl Etheridge, who fear that the lessons of that devastating event are fading. We do have a population here now that did not go through Katrina, and so they really don't have the storm savvy that a lot of the older residents do, and we're having to do a lot of outreach for that. But there do seem to be some lasting changes in the community, in infrastructure, planning, preparation, and giving. Rotary Club volunteer David Weldon. We'll pay this forward for the rest of our life. So that devastating event has created a sense of community here for the rest of the Gulf Coast that will last for a lifetime. While Weldon wasn't here to see the outpouring of giving after Katrina, he is seeing it today firsthand, 15 years later one can of vegetables and case of water at a time. Evelina Burnett, MPB News. Coming up, COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations are trending down in August, but health professionals say the threat of the pandemic is far from over. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. We are the Iuka Drive-In Theater. We're the last operating drive-in in the state of Mississippi. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. Freaked me out that you could come and drive your car and park and watch the movie outside. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app, Mile Marker, a Mississippi Roads podcast. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. 
After a July that featured the worst rates of community transmission during the pandemic, Mississippi's daily new COVID-19 cases have decreased over several weeks, and statewide COVID-19 hospitalizations are down by almost one-third in August. But health officials say the overall numbers are still too high. Dr. Luann Woodward is Vice Chancellor of Health Affairs at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. She tells our Kobe Vance, while challenging, wearing a mask and maintaining social distance guidelines are still the best way to combat continued spread. These are all challenges that we're going to have to, um, you know, work through. I don't think we can let the virus, um, you know, completely change everything about our lives. But I do think for the next six months or maybe even eight, nine, 12 months, we're going to have to learn how to live with it. Um, I, I did want to ask you about um, um well, first off, before I get to that point, um, I wanted to ask about UMMC. How is how is your hospital doing? Um, how we've seen hospitalizations go down statewide. Has that That's been right. reflected in your hospital as well? It has. We have fewer um, COVID patients right now than we had, you know, a few weeks ago, and certainly four or six weeks ago. So our numbers of the COVID patients have gone down. However, our beds are still full because we have got a lot of patients that are not COVID patients. There are some patients that put off having surgical procedures, you know, for some time, and now they're coming in and having those done. There are patients with all the things that happen um, as a baseline, whether or not we're in a pandemic, people are having wrecks, people are having heart attacks and strokes and other things. People are needing treatment for cancers and other types of conditions. So we are actually still full right now today, but our number of COVID patients um, has declined, which which reflects what's going on around the state. When do you think and what benchmark do you think will the state or the nation will have to make in order to uh, begin to overcome the coronavirus? You know, I think that one of the important components of us being able to get ahead of this will be the development of a vaccine. Um, But that's not the only thing. This is a virus that's relatively new to all of us, and we're learning so much. You know, we are learning as we go, which is a very uncomfortable feeling for all of us. I know that I, along with friends of mine that are not in the medical profession, um, you know, would have liked to have known back in March what we know now and, and, and have answers more readily available. But we're learning as we go. Certainly, I believe that the development of a vaccine will be something that really helps us in our efforts to turn the corner and to feel like we have gotten ahead of it a little bit. And and the good news is, um, while it typically takes many, many years to develop a vaccine, there has been an approach um, in the medical and scientific industry of kind of all hands on deck. And so there are multiple vaccines under development. Vaccines are different types. And they are, so like I said, people are pursuing multiple pathways at the same time. It's not so much a um, one trial after another trial after another trial kind of approach. It's multiple trials at once approach. So that gives me hope that in the early part of next calendar year, 
um, that there may well be a vaccine available for treatment. There are several vaccines right now that have already made it to the third phase of clinical trial study. Um, and, and really, it's been miraculous, but thinking about the timeline and how much investment has been put into this and how many different companies and different organizations have been involved in it. So it's not going to be the, the answer to all of our problems, but it certainly will help a lot. Dr. Luann Woodward is Vice Chancellor of Health Affairs at UMMC. Experts are also concerned about a possible resurgence in new coronavirus cases in the fall. Dr. Mark Horn, president of the Mississippi State Medical Association, says he's encouraged by the recent decline in cases. But with students resuming on-campus learning and the return of fall weather, there will likely be a second wave of the virus. I'm encouraged because we believe uh at MSMA and the Department of Health that what's happened is uh, people have done better with uh, personal distancing, with avoiding large crowds, with wearing uh, masks and other things that have helped to suppress or decrease the spread. That's all fantastic. So they, uh, thanks to the people of Mississippi for doing the hard work of decreasing the spread. But two things. One, we've now gone back to school. And uh, so my, we've got kids going back to college and, uh, and back to elementary and high schools and kindergartens, and there's still significant spread in the community. So this is people gathering, and they're doing a great – I think most of the schools that I've been to and seen are doing a really good job, but there's every reason to believe, based on past experience with this disease and other, uh, other viruses that are spread by a respiratory route, that going back to school is going to cause uh, a rise in cases. And so there's every reason to believe that we're not through this yet. Uh, We're going to have a second wave, and uh, we need to be ready for that. And so that second wave, what is that going to look like? How how can we uh, identify that when it begins to happen, and how can we stop it? So we'll know because cases will start to rise again. We'll start to see an increase in transmission where people gather, um, we'll start to see a rise in hospitalizations again. Uh, there's every reason. We're preparing. I can tell you that hospitals and physician clinics around the state are preparing for just this very thing. We expect it to occur. So we're preparing for it right now. So we'll know when we see the rising cases. And what can people do to suppress, uh, to help prevent it? I don't know that we can prevent it, but we can certainly blunt it by doing exactly what we're doing now, being really good about avoiding going, no no unforced errors by going to large gatherings unnecessarily, no uh, gathering together in in large groups in confined spaces, Uh, wearing a mask, doing all the normal things we've been discussing for months that have helped us thus far. And as far as like looking into the future, um, I know we don't have a crystal ball, but how bad do you think it's going to be? You know, we've already seen um, some schools have to close their doors, either for just specific grades or um, in the case of a Biloxi school, they've shut down their school for a, a period of time um, to deal with coronavirus, uh, deal with the coronavirus outbreak. Um, how bad do you think this second wave might be? Is it going to be worse than what we saw in late July? Well, I don't have personal deep insights, but that is certainly what other experts, Dr. Dobbs, Dr. Thomas Dobbs is 
certainly stated that he believes this second wave could be worse than what we've experienced earlier in the year. And um, that's our concern. If you uh, look at past uh, pandemics, the, the second wave sort of phenomenon is a common theme. And uh, the second wave is often worse than the beginning. So that's our concern. Uh, is that exactly what's going to happen? We do have uh, the opportunity as a population, as a community uh, of people who care to suppress that, to diminish it. I don't think we can stop it, but we can certainly have an effect on it if we'll do the right things, working together, caring about each other, and suppressing uh, transmission. Dr. Mark Horn is the president of the Mississippi State Medical Association. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.